We'd like to thank Flown.com for being a partner of He Shoots, He Draws. Flown make learning fun and engaging with an extensive library of pro tutorials for Photoshop, Lightroom and photography at all levels of expertise, from beginners to advanced. You can get started on Flown from just $9.95 a month, which gives you access to over 140 tutorials covering photo editing, retouching, compositing, software basics, photography and much, much more. There's new tutorials every month and you can cancel at any time. For He Shoots He Draws listeners, you can use code GETPRO20, that's G-E-T-P-R-O number 20, to get 20% off when you sign up. Check out flearn.com today. Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design, with your hosts, Glenn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello and welcome to a new episode of He Shoots, He Draws. Now, this episode is going to be different to the norm, and that's because of the time when it's been released. Yesterday in the UK was Remembrance Sunday, a day when the entire nation takes time to honour and remember those who were lost in World War I and World War II those who pay the ultimate price so that we can live in peace and with the freedoms that we do today. You're going to hear excerpts from times when I've had the pleasure of sitting and chatting with our surviving World War II veterans as part of my 3945 Portraits project. You're going to hear humour, incredible acts of humanity, first-hand accounts of a mid-air collision, a surprise attack, and you'll hear from a prisoner of war. The men you'll hear from are David Edwards, Jeff Howard, Fred Glover, Victor Urch, Rusty Warman, Jim Hooper, Frank Pendergast, Mervyn Kirsch, Jack Ansell and Gordon Drabble. Before I went to the army, my father, who was in the army, he was a sergeant in the Monmouthshire Regiment for quite a long time. And he said to me, before you go, Dave, get yourself a haircut. And so religiously I went to the barbers and I had what in those days was called a short back and sides. And I had this haircut and it was short back and sides. But they cut it up to there, and very short. And I mom prayed with the Mormons Regiment. Was it the Mormons or was I in training? Anyway, I was on parade and a lot of young fellas like me were there. And the, the corporal, I, I think he was a corporal, he had a big stick they used to put under their left arm and strut about everywhere giving orders. And he came along and he said, when I touches you on the shoulder with my stick, it means Eckert. And I thought, oh, I'm, I stood there in the line and I thought, oh, Dad was right. Yeah, that was clever. That was sensible, telling me. And I've had one, so I'm okay. Suddenly the stick comes down on my shoulder from behind. Hecat, he growled, you know, Hecat. And I t- made a mistake and I turned and I said, I had one yesterday, Corporal. Oh, did you have one yesterday? Oh, I see, you had one yesterday. You'll have another one, a bloody proper one. <laughs> That's how they thought haircuts were important, you know. So I marched off with this group. 
And there was one chap, they called him Curly, and he was he was Curly. Uh, and he stood with us, and he stood in front of us. We, I can see that stick now, he was brandishing it and putting it back under his arm and all that. And he said, Thompson, I think his name was Thompson, Thompson, you were first. And Thompson goes, and he came out and it was all gone. Everything, all the curls and everything. Oh, God. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> place called the Ricefold, which is a forest. And uh, our machine gun, I was a sergeant then, and our machine guns were, you know, sighted along the edge of this forest, looking out. And uh, just down the forest was my original platoon, uh, one of my friends. So... I thought I'd go and have a chat with him. I'd take my webbing off, which included my weapon, which was a Webley revolver, because I, I could see him. So I had a chat and his dinner came up. So I said, well, I'll let you eat the dinner. Alf, his name was. So I uh, started to walk back and... In between me and where my gun was, was a fire break. On, to my surprise, walking up this fire break was a fully armed German. And I had nothing. But he looked to, I mean, I was about 25, I suppose. He was a, looked to me 40 or 50. You know, old man to me. And... Uh, he was trudging along with his rifle on his shoulder, looking at the ground, and I, I thought he was a bit what they call bomb-happy, you know, chill shot. So I shouted out, Alf, there's a German coming up. So he said, well, leave him alone. I said, there's a German coming up. He said, well, why don't you let me eat my dinner? So uh, I had to do something. So I waited till this ger old German got right close, and I said, Jumped out and I said, Come as you hear, hand up, me down the hand up. So he looked at me quite slowly, calmly took his rifle off his shoulder, this is true, put one up the spout, took aim. I thought this is getting dangerous, like, you know. So I, t I had to start stand sideways between a tree because they weren't wide enough. And he took a shot at me, of course, missed. And he took another shot at me, missed again. And he decided he'd had enough, so he put his rifle on his shoulder and started to walk away. So, of course, some of my boys had been roused by the shots going off. And the first one who reached me was Irish. Riley, his name was. And when he got... Excited, he used to stutter, and I said, "You'd have to shoot him, Riley, you know, because if he shot one of my own blokes, I'd never forgive myself." So Riley wouldn't shoot anyone in the back because this German had lost all interest in us by now. So he was trying to tell him the whole, "Ha ha 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 ha!" I said, "He'll be back in bloody Berlin by the time." So I took his sting gun. You know what a stinker, not a stunk on a stinker. 
but it was a single shot. They shot this German in the fleshy part of his leg. So, uh, we, of course, he fell over. We went up and uh, uh, I had to search him. So he pulled his rifle away. And they got these breast pockets in their uniform. Went to undo one and he said, nine, 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 you know. So I thought, oh, he's got something in there. He don't want me to see. And when I got, opened it, it was a picture of a lady and a child. So I said, uh, that's his dying friend and kinder, you know, this is your wife and child. And he said, yeah, I'm so good. I said, shown that means very nice, like. And uh, put it back for him. But then a stretcher's bearer come, so I had to help carry him about a quarter mile back to the first aid place. Where we all had a cup of tea, all of us. Last thing, I, I helped shove him in a, an ambulance. I said, well, at least you'll get home, albeit with a limp, but it's more on what we can say, you know. I was quite pleased I'd never, you know, I had to stop him, but I just shot him in the leg. Well, that was all about them going up to my sister-in-law's and uh, the question of 90th birthdays came up. And I said, oh, well, I don't know, box of chocolates or ginger wine. And I said, oh, I said, oh, uh, something a bit different to that. So in the end, we finished up with <laughs> a parachute jump. So I said, well, that's fair enough. And fortunately, my um, sister-in-law it's quite a dab handy getting things done on the Facebook and that. And uh, she set the whole thing up so that all the money that was accumulated went to the, uh, what do they call it, CWC. Um, well, the Commonwealth uh, Grow uh, Commission. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, that was quite remarkable because I had a, a note from the, um, I think they got an office in Bexley or somewhere, and uh, they came to see me with a congratulate thing, you know, because I had raised 2,500, which is very good. Uh, well, we were very pleased about it, of course, and of course it came on from there. Um, I was going down to, I think I must be going down to, um, might have been, might have been the, the um, ferry terminal. But anyway, a colleague of mine who was in the, um, you know, the, uh, What's the name of them? They're a charity, taxi drivers oh, charity. Taxi charity. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I got involved with somebody there, and they said, "Well, um, why don't you do some parachuting for us?" I said, "Well, I, I don't mind. Yeah, provided it's charity, but it's got to be charity." 
and um, that's how it came about actually. And then uh, I, I did a number of um, I did two over in Merville, and uh, which is by a French team. Uh, and then of course I had more at the Old Serum, Red Devils. See. So it was all quite, actually I missed it really, I missed it. Was it the, the, the feeling of when you went and did that parachute jump when you were 90, the first one, the first jump you'd done in a, you know, a good few years? Yeah. How did it feel being back up Well I'll tell you what it felt like. See, you're sitting on somebody's lap, bear that in mind, and they have shuffled where the seat is, you see, and you're sitting, <laughs> sitting out, look at it, all the vista spread out before you, you know, it's quite a frightening, see, because with a parachute jump, normally you jump and that's it, you know, but with this, you're sitting on somebody's lap, and where you're half hanging out of the door, and you can see everything there, you know, and uh, it's quite, actually, uh, I thought the adrenaline was running fast then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, most enjoyable though, most enjoyable. I wish I could have gone on doing it, but um, getting insurance is a problem. Brings back memories of what the rest of the troops went through. And it's nice to think that you can go back and pay your respect to what they went through during the war. That's how I look at it myself and think, well, you met some good mates and friends and you lost them through the war. But and then I paled up with Frank about six years ago, we were at Aramanche on the beach. Well, not on the beach, stood by a seat. That's the picture behind you. Yeah. And that was, he come up to me and said about it. And he said, you in the Navy? I said, yeah, on landing craft. He said, what number? I said, 390. He said, good God, he said, I was on 380. <laughs> And we went from there, and he said, can you remember some of the trips? So I said, well, yeah, the last one was when we went from Ostend, uh, from Tilbury, to go to Ostend, when the war got further inland to bring German prisoners back to England. And that we'd done a few trips like that. Where we had them in their collision was we were going to a target called uh, the Railway Marshalling Yards is Hasselt in Belgium. This was on the German border, big railway marshalling yards. And we just left Antwerp and we were, we were flying. It's all, all our operation was night flying. This was a night and, and quite a lot of cloud about. And we had just left Antwerp and we were about, oh, about eight, ten minutes from the target. And the engineer. Curly looking out of his window, standing by his side, looking out of his window on the starboard side, just said a very rude word, 
and this Lancaster just slid into the side of us. And he was slightly be behind us, and he just slipped underneath. And his propellers cut through the, our bomb aimer's compartment just behind the bomb aimer's feet. And his canopy on the top was carved off. God knows what happened to the crew. Well, we knew what, we knew eventually what happened to the crew. We were all killed. But his canopy was torn off, which took our starboard wheel off, starboard tyre off. And then the mid-upper turret on the top carved through just behind our bomb doors, a big hole right across the aircraft, damaged both the main launch rods, took part of the tail off, lost our trailer aerial, all our electrics. So uh, I didn't see this thing, uh, but I was asked to give a little report about it when we got back. This is there's a little bit of a risky story, this was, because uh, when the, the CEO said... Now, well, this is not an inquiry. We just want to know what the experience was. And he said, now, do, tell us about it and give it right about it and give it a title of the most experienced thing that happened during the incident. And I said, well, the most experienced was when we were sitting on top of him and all our controls were limp. We had no controls whatsoever. So I called this article. It went limp in my hand. So... Uh, <laughs> that that didn't get any further. What yeah, I don't think we can do that. So that that what ha what happened to that I don't know. But <clears throat> on the squadron and these sort of incidences, uh, the usual general aircrew weren't told about these things uh, because all the senior staff were instructed not to discuss casualties and accidents with the usual crews, keep up morale going. So what actually happened? But so I, I sadly, uh, we had to do a, a crash landing when we got back, which wrote the aircraft off, uh, and uh, we had to get another one. Uh, wasn't another new one, but uh, the only, there was a casualty that night, sadly. Uh, when we were skidding across the grass uh, towards the control tower in the semi-dark, the... All the little boys and girls on the control tower came out on the balcony to see this idiot bend his aeroplane. And one of the little girls jumped back and sprained her ankle. That was, a, that was the only casualty that night. But some of the crew were pretty shaken up. Uh, rear gunner had been knocked unconscious in the incident. And, and this is this thing, you, you think of an air crew, and anybody says talk about a bomber crew, you think about a pilot. And it wasn't just a pilot. We had seven bonds behind us telling us what to do. And my rear gunner, having been knocked out and been unconscious, and when we recovered ourselves, and on the way back home, I said, Harry, I said, uh, we've had a lot of bad damage down the back end. If we have to take a vase of action, we'll more likely break up. Get your parachute and come up front and get Tommy to come up, made up a gunner, to come up front as well. If we have to break up, you'll be able to get out easily. And he said, no, I'll stop here and keep a lookout for you. And similarly, uh, on the Nuremberg raid, we had nine hours of freezing conditions. His electrically heated Sidcup suit failed. He, he was in freezing conditions. All the flight never mentioned it. And when we came back to get out the aircraft, he couldn't get out. And when I opened his back door of his turret to get him out, he was sitting there with an icicle as thick as my wrist down between his legs. But he never said a word.
Was, how, how old would he have been at that time? 1920, 19, 19. And these, these are the crew, you know, it wasn't just the pilot, you know. I had, had, a, had a wonderful crew from schoolboys to uh, council workers. You know, my, my navigator lied about his age to join up. He joined up when he was 16. He was operational with us when he was 18. But we, we didn't know about it at the time. We didn't find out until we our 80th birthdays <laughs> in Lincoln where we all sit around the table in the pub and said, oh, uh, we've all got our 80th birthday. Alec, when's your 80th birthday? And he said, it's not for another two years yet. So that's the first time we found out where he was. But really, they were really a wonderful crew, wonderful crew. So you kept in touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so there's three, still three of us left now, which is amazing. My, 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 my bombie, my started life in the gypsy caravan in Manchester, uh, uh, joined me as a crew, and he used to, very dapper little man, to come on operations with a crease in his trousers. But he now lives in the tax haven in Andorra. <laughs> but sadly, his health doesn't allow him to travel. So I have to say, he used to come back every year, but he can't do that now. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's, it's marvellous. Uh, I really was so lucky with the crew. We took off uh, behind uh, a, a Canadian pilot this time. And the takeoff was quite successful. We got to about 2,000 feet and we weren't very far from uh, Abingdon when the rope broke. And it broke up at the uh, end of at, at the, uh, uh, the, at the um, tug end. Uh, it came away and it came back and with a hell of a bang hit the, uh, uh, the, 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 the prospects of the, of the cabin and then dropped away. And I'd urge the uh, second pilot to keep pulling on the lever to make sure that the rope had got clear. And I looked then round for a place to uh, to try and land, bearing in mind that 2,000 feet, you haven't got very much time to make a selection. And I was looking round, and I, I saw an American uh, uh, ambulance that was circling the area. I thought, oh, well, that's a pretty good sign anyway. If we do have any problems on landing, there's <clears throat> at least medical aid uh, within uh, uh, easy reach. And I went in, made the landing, the approach, and all of a sudden, I just got the, rather, I just got the main wheels down just when all of a sudden the glider stopped and started to cat catapult, uh, to cartwheel rather, and uh, I, it's, it went forward, stopped, came back again, and I wondered what the hell had happened this time. Got out, and the glider had broken in half after the main planes, and uh, um, the the, uh, the the troops that they were in pretty good order, apart from one or two got splinters and and sprains. But that was it. I got out and uh, examined the glider and then looked for the cause of this sudden uh, uh, stop and found that the rope had, had in fact, not... It had come away, but it has a, a yoke 
that was attached to uh, two points on the starboard and the port wing. And it had actually dropped away from its moorings, but it had dropped round the nose wheel. And it had twisted round the nose wheel. It had extended to its full length, wrapped around a tree at the edge of the area, and we got down just in time, because if we'd been any higher at all, even 10 feet, I think that the glider would have cartwheel, would have, uh, a cartwheel completely, and uh, who knows, I think we, uh, we would have had a lot of casualties. Well, I would have better than a jack the lead. To be honest and true, when I was, before I went in the army, I thought, well, if I go in the army, they're not the sugar out of me, and you know, bring me back, you know, because I, I wasn't happy with it, to be honest and true with it, but that, that was my life then, you know, fighting was my life. And um, my hands were black, not not that colour, they were, they were really black through fighting. We used to go down Millwall, and I mean, we used to go, not to see Millwall football, but we used to go up, up, up on the bank, you used, used to overlook the ground, and we used to go through the tin move the tins over and get uh, get in back through the back door like as you go, go up on the back. But there was all Millwall supporters down there, like, you know. Yeah. I mean, some of them buggers were real big buggers, you know, and they had big bleeding boots and everything else, you know. Uh, we used to go up there, and, of course, there was about eight or nine of us and used to go, start shouting out for the, for the other team, like, you know, if Millwall was in red or whatever colour, we we shout out for the other team, you know, whatever team they were. And this bloke looking down at me, what's your bleeding cape then like, you know? What are you on? What's the matter with you? We've come here to see, you know, cheer our team on. He said, you don't even know the name of the f***ing team. He said, about anything else, you know? Of course, you know, one thing led to the other, and that was there before we started. Bang, 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 bang. And I was bleeding ribs, crushed to bleeding pieces, my eyes down here, my eyes, I've had my nose broken about six bleeding times. It was a stupid way of life. Anyway, as I say, going back to me, going back in the army, I thought, well, knock some of the sugar out of me and I'll be all right. Of course, when I went in the army, all it was was, you know, left turns, right turns and marching up and down. And I thought, oh, for Christ's sake, you know. You could do this stand on me bleeding head, like, you know. Anyway, I hadn't been in there very long. And this uh, bloke coming up, I didn't know who the bleeding all he was, but he was a major in the paratroop regiment, and he brought a sergeant along with him, you know. And he said, uh, I'd like to have a, a, a all group, group together if you can. He said, I, can't, I don't want to shout out all over the butcher. He said, but uh, I'm here, he said, on regards of parachutes. So I thought, oh, the parachute regiment, oh, the bleeding all that, oh, jumping out of a plane, oh, I thought, no, 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 or I'll have a bit of that. So, of course, he said, is there any volunteers for the parachute regiment? Of course, my bleeding hand went up, so bleeding quick, you'd have thought it was bleeding jet propelled. And there was about four or five others, you know, that said that they, they would go. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is good, you know. At least I'll, I'll see some of the action now, you know, Getting into parachutes, of course. When it all, you know, I'm skipping, I'm skipping a lot of it because when I w- went, they would sent me in the 
what you got they sent us up, up to Ardwick. Well, if you got through Ardwick, don't matter where you were in the world, if you got through Ardwick, you can get through any fucking any training you like. You know, and, and it was really they were sergeants of a different nature to all. And I called them sergeants of a different nature and all, you know. Oh, he said, that's all right. He said, you'll, you'll be all right. You'll, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be all right, one, one of us. You know? Of course, when I went into the paratroopers, they was all bleeding jack the lads, you know. They was all fighters, all, all tr- what they call trouble bleeding makers then. You know, and I thought, oh, this can't be bleeding bad, you know. Anyway, of course, we used to go out together, you know, all, all together, like, you know. Is there anything in particular, when you, when you think about the training that you did to become a para, yeah. how, how did you find the training, really? I mean, was it was there anything in particular that you really enjoyed or anything you found difficult? Well, I, I, I think a lot of it was uh, you had to prove yourself. You could, you, could, you could take it sort of thing. And Ardwick was, was, I mean, some of them, at the start of Ardwick, before, you know, running up a bleeding hills with a half a tree on your on your back, you want, uh, want everybody's cup of tea. And they just sod this, like, you know, packed it in before they even started, sort of thing, you know. But, uh, you know, as I say, we went through these bleeding ditches and, uh, and tunnels and Christ knows what. Get your head in there like that. Like, oh, you bastard. Oh, get you out of here. Oh, f***ing kill you. You know, uh, of course, they are. That's, that was the way of life. Yeah. And there was, we went in a convoy from where we were and crowds of people down the lane, country lanes or the A3, I don't know what it was, um, waving shouting out blessings and, you know, God bless you and all that sort of thing. Then we realised that DJ had started. They showed us the papers. We didn't know. Uh, we got to Gosport. We put in a back street. The local women, the houses, kept us a constant supply of tea, which I don't like, still, still don't like. Um, but we were also getting fed with meat and veg soup mixed, um, and fruit, tin fruit, and and uh, more tea. Um, well, I don't eat the meat, um, so I didn't have that, and I changed mine for more peach, tin peaches. We had a new officer at the time, because the previous one had lost some uh, secret documents carelessly. He's gone up to London on a motorbike, got some documents, and was supposed to be coming back, but he stopped to have lunch, left his bike outside. When he came out, the pannier with the secret documents and the whole bike had gone. So the next we saw of him was being marched in, uh, marched off uh, under arrest. And they brought in some infantry chap to take his place who knew nothing about our work. And he heard or saw that I wasn't eating the meat and veg, so he had me arrested and taken before him at the back of the lorry. And I spent an hour there explaining to him why I didn't eat the meat. For religious reasons, I didn't eat the meat, but I'm exchanging it for that. Because his idea was that I was trying to get out of crossing, you know, going across, um, trying to avoid act, render myself unfit for active service. That's what he called. Anyway, I persuaded him otherwise, and he just said, we're gone. 
I didn't never saw him again. Captain Baldwin I never saw him again. I don't know what happened to him. Um, anyway, the, um, we got down to Gosport and we were waiting there and then suddenly Colonel Gore appeared and asked us all to get together, a thousand of us, uh, uh, 200 of us, as I say, his, his, the vehicle company. Um, he said they'd been torpedoed on the way over. All the other nine had been blown to pieces at below decks. He was on, on deck talking to the skipper, thrown into the sea, picked up by a helicopter and brought back. Um, and now he wants replacements. So that's how I came D D plus three instead of D D five or six. Then it all came to a conclusion at Kalamata when the Germans we were laying a line um, along the gutter for the night's communications when uh, the Germans entered the. Uh, Enter the town, and I can remember Alec, my sergeant, was in front of me, and I was about oh, 20 feet behind him, unrolling a reel of cable. When uh, I noticed a German sidecar with a driver on the motorbike and somebody in the sidecar coming up to him and uh, he told me afterwards this one of the Germans jumped off stuck his Tommy gun in his guts and said for you the war is over sergeant now I, I, I didn't hear any of this he told me but then I saw him going towards a group of eight or nine of our chaps who'd been captured and um, I thought what's happening here and I half turned to see what was happening with the rifle still on my shoulder when the German soldier on, appeared on my left and fired along the ground alongside of me. So I uh, went on and joined this small group, still with my rifle on my shoulder. And uh, when I got there, there was the German sergeant holding us all up with his Tommy gun. And one of our chaps said to me, drop that effing rifle off, you'll get a shot. So I quietly slid it off my shoulder onto the ground. And then uh, we were marched along the the, the, the seafront and we came to a German field gun which was pointing in our direction. And a young German gunner about my age came up to me and said, our war today, perhaps yours tomorrow. Uh, but he never had a tomorrow because from my recollection, New Zealand troops attacked pretty quickly and killed all of the gun crew. And of course, I was a prisoner of war by this time. And uh, I can remember after... There was about a dozen of us that were that were kind of paraded with uh, <coughs> a German officer in command, and they started to um, march us off. And as they marched off, I, I don't know why. Perhaps I had a thought in mind to escape. 
because I nipped onto the other side of the road and immediately a German soldier hit me across the behind with the flat side of his bayonet. So I uh, I went back. And as we approached um, uh, a road, um, a German tank was coming out as I was about to cross. And a German soldier took the scruff of my collar and pulled me back. He saved my life. And then uh, we uh, were marshalled up onto a hill, about 20 of us, and we were told to lie down. If we, if we attempted to move, we'd be shot. So we went to sleep. And in the morning, when I looked down, there was a whole column of our soldiers who'd surrendered at noon, at dawn. They'd been warned if they didn't surrender, the German Air Force was coming in. So they had, had no alternative. Uh, well, we, we were in the corn, uh, corner tyke and uh, uh, that was a big battle. They, uh, Monty wanted to uh, get corn out of the way, tried twice before and just had enough manpower to do it. So there was a three-divisional attack there. We were in the middle, the third British Div on the left and the third Canadians on our right. And when they met, we pulled out for safety, uh, for our safety, really, and uh, and uh, formed up, regrouped. I think there were about 1,000 men in the... Uh, Stafford book, 1,200 men were killed uh, or wounded there. There were quite heavy casualties. And we were outside by her. And my friend uh, had, had another friend in the cycle company. So he said, I think I could borrow a couple of bikes. and we'll, Shall we go into by her? Which we did. We cycled in and it was looking very tatty. It was an open city. Uh, untouched really as far as uh, any damage was concerned but uh, of course the paintwork was very very poor on the houses and there was straw all over the roads it wasn't very tidy not to what it is today but we cycled bike and uh, no sooner got bike we had to move on and we went down the side of uh, uh, Khan to a place called Neuers. That was the objective ultimately. But first of all, we had to take a, a group of uh, farm buildings uh, just uh, uh, north of uh, of uh, Bordel Bordel Wood, where we was our second objective. And uh, the first one there, uh, my uh, uh, I was. Uh, Corporal, Lance Corporal then, and my corporal uh, got wounded, he got injured uh, and uh, had to leave us. So uh, I was uh, asked to take over uh, as uh, a section leader. And uh, the first action we saw was uh, uh, this uh, group of farm buildings where uh, two sections of ours had got pinned down uh, both the corporals had got killed, actually killed, not wounded. And uh, they, uh, 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 CO then realised the difficulty 
he brought a tank up and they blasted the uh, the upper floor of the farm buildings and uh, of course they all ran out, ran out eventually we went through and made sure it was clear and uh, all this group there were about 10 of them had been in the building 10 uh, german uh, uh, with uh, a couple of uh, machine guns and uh, they were just sitting on the wall uh, ra- rather doubtful as to what was going to happen to them but of course like uh, we should they were taken prisoner and we moved on then to the edge of the farm of the farm buildings dug in for the night and then next day moved on uh, to uh, Bordel Wood where we, the uh, uh, company as a whole, moved in, uh, in uh, into the wood after some uh, tank firing really haphazardly on the edge of the wood. They got the Beezer uh, machine guns and just uh, fired through the wood to uh, open, uh, to hit something, but there's no real target but uh, trying to give us support. But uh, this was a bit of a disaster. In the end, we had to withdraw, and uh, we uh, had quite a few casualties. In total, there was three sergeants killed there, one at the side of me and uh, several other ranks. But uh, the other two sergeants, one was acting uh, as an officer, a uh, platoon commander and his his sergeant and uh, they were the three sergeants another sergeant came in with us and withdrew he had his um, uh, his uh, Bren gun shot out of his hand and uh, he told us to get back but uh, I just got behind the biggest tree I could find until it quietened down and uh, uh, Frightened to death, I must say, but uh, still kept my head. And when it calmed down a bit, I just zigzagged back to the uh, to where uh, our start line had been. And uh, the the officer, our he was a Canadian on on loan, can, can loan uh, officer, and uh, he'd been there with the the uh, 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 Bren gunner who was actually killed. A new Lance Corporal had taken over from me and uh, he was killed, a young man called Wilson. And uh, so we had to withdraw and we went back to uh, the day day before's starting line and stayed there. 